Well, open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to again to Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, I'll be reading beginning in verse 1 down through about the middle of verse 3. So Hebrews chapter 1 and then beginning in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, and in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. And let us pray. Father, thank you so much again for just the privilege of worshiping the Assembly of the Saints. I thank you for the time together. And, and again, I would ask for uh, the help of your Holy Spirit this morning as I would uh, seek to be pleasing to thee and, and do good to the souls of those who are here. So I pray for your help and your assistance. And again, I would ask that you would work in our hearts and, and give us understanding into your word in such a way not only that you would be glorified, but it would be um, strength to our own soul, encouragement to our own hearts as we seek to live for your glory in the time that you have given us here. So I, I pray it would be helpful to us and, and encouragement to us. Um, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several uh, years ago, um, I was helped by the writings of uh, David Wells, and you might be familiar with some of his books. He was a professor at that time at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Southampton, Massachusetts. And he, he wrote a book in 1993, which had quite an influence, called No Place for Truth. And it was uh, his uh, assessment of the church at that particular point in time. The subtitle was, Or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology?, and following that, I, th I believe the next year he wrote a, a similar work called God in the Wasteland. And, and chapter 5 of that book is called The Weightlessness of God. And then he clarifies what he means by that phrase. He, he wrote, it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetite for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness." He goes on to make the point that in our times, he says, we experience our own time as such a rich and intense confusion that it's not always easy to distinguish vices from virtues. The untrue appears true. The bad passes itself off as good. And often the trivial masquerades as important. The trivial masquerades as important. He, he goes on to speak of the loss of the transcendence of the being of God. These changes say a lot about our internal landscape and our worldliness. For a God who has thus lost weight is, not, is no longer the God of biblical faith or classical Christianity. A, a God with whom we are in such easy terms and whose reality is little different from our own has no real authority to compel and will soon begin to bore us. This is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's scarcely even the God of the philosophers, and certainly not the God of Jesus Christ. 
while persuaded that his assessment was accurate then, maybe even more so now, the question is, how does one protect yourself or myself from this, this malady of just sort of marginalizing, marginalizing God and discounting the being of God? How do we respond to that for the good of our souls? Why? I believe one right response is to remind ourselves that the God of the Bible, the God that created the, the world, the God who is the moral governor of the universe is also the most glorious person in the universe. It's to remind ourselves, the God of the Bible who created it all, he's not gone, but he is the most glorious being in the universe. He has no rival. And, and so really it's simply to do what the scriptures have to say with respect to bringing glory to God and being affected by his glory. Like Psalm 29.1, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name, worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord is over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is majestic. And verse 9 says, the voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare, and in his temple everything says glory. So it's to bring glory to God. It's to recognize that he is the most glorious being in the universe. However, we also need to remind ourselves, not only is God the Father infinitely glorious, but so is his Son. His Son is infinitely glorious as well, to such a degree that... Uh, in his high priestly prayer, this is the night before he was crucified, <clears throat> he's pouring his soul out to God the Father. And one of the things he says is, Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou dost love me before the foundation of the world. John Owen, the Puritan, wrote a treatise on this particular text on the, the value of beholding the glory of the person of Christ. And let me share a little bit of what he said. It will herein, and in the discharge of this duty, be made evident how slight and inconsiderable all these things are from whence our troubles and distresses do arise. He says, they all grow on this root of an overvaluation of temporal things. And unless we can arrive into a fixed judgment that all things here below are transitory and perishing, reaching only unto the outward man or the body, that the best of them have nothing that is truly substantial or abiding in them, that there are other things wherein we have an assured interest that are incomparably better than they and above them is impossible, but that we must spend our lives in fear, sorrows, and distractions. One real view of the glory of Christ and of our own concernment therein will give us a full relief in this matter. For what are, what are all the things of this life? What is the good or evil of them in comparison of an interest in this transcendent glory? When we have due apprehensions hereof, when our minds are possessed with thoughts of it, when our affections reach out after its enjoyments, let pain and sickness and sorrows and fears and dangers and death say what they will. We'll have in readiness wherewith to combat with them and overcome them, and that on this consideration that they are all outward, transitory, and passing away. Whereas our minds are fixed on those things which are eternal, filled with incomprehensible glory. Well, that's pretty much all I have to say. Let us pray. <laughs> well, I think the words of our text are a great incentive and a great help to, to practice the beholding of the glory of the being of Christ. In particular, the words I want to draw your attention to this morning, he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. It's part of a section here, verses 1 through 4, 
uh, where God has spoken in these last days by his son. This, his final word is in his son. Time passed through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken in his son. And we've noted here that there are several realities or facts that bring out the greatness of the son. And these realities about him, what they do is they, they feed into our persuasion of the propriety and the rightness that, that uh, him being the final word to us, that it's, it's right for him to be God's final word to us. It's because of the greatness of his being, which consists the fact that he's appointed heir of all things, all things were created through him. And now there are two more facts or realities that, that further, I think, heighten our persuasion that he is qualified to be the means of God's final word or final revelation uh, to us. And the emphasis last week was on the, on the first two of these qualities, and that was God's activity through the Son. And this morning, we want to focus on two more realities, and they're especially the relationship of the Father to the Son. We'll just take them in the order in which they occur in our text. First of all, he is the glorious manifestation of the Father's being. He is the glorious manifestation of the Father's being. And two points this morning, and the first one is quite a bit longer than the second one, just so that you know where we're going here. But he is the pure, clear, glorious manifestation of the Father's being. He's a perfect, untarnished expression of the Father's essential glory. He is the radiance of his glory. The the verb translated is... The New American Standard Bible is rendered being in the King James, being the brightness of his glory. It's it's a present tense. So it's his ongoing condition. His ongoing, unchanging condition is being the radiance of his glory. The verb is occurs also in John chapter 1 and verse 1. It's in the past tense. It's what's called the imperfect tense, where it says, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. That was the word's ongoing condition. In both cases, it refers to an unchanging condition. There's no time when he was not the radiance of his glory. Now, the term uh, radiance, it's, it's the quality of sending out rays of light, King James Version says brightness. The ASV calls it the effulgence of his glory, which is to send forth a flood of light, to shine with splendor. The idea, I think, is replicated in the morning uh, when the sun comes up and, and, and the rays just pass through the clouds and, and you see, you see the, the flood of light that is coming. Philip Hughes calls it the effulgence of God's splendor. So it's a display of his magnificence. Paul Ellingworth wrote, it may be understood actively of light radiating out from a source. Uh, Accordingly, as the the radiance of God's glory, the sun is the manifestation of God's glorious presence. In in Matthew 1.23, it says, The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Uh, Further, we read here that he's the radiance of God's glory or his glory. A short definition of glory would be the revelation of nature. So later on, when you try, what does glory mean? Revelation is a key word. It's the revelation of his nature or the revelation of his attributes. In Leviticus 9.23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. In Numbers 14.21, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 40 and verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So um, 
Edward Young wrote, it's the revelation of his attributes. And a bit more expansively here, <clears throat> the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature normally conveyed to humanity as superlative brightness. Uh, one put, it's often pictured as resplendent light. And Philip Hughes in his work gives a, an example of that. He says it was the radiant glory of Yahweh's presence which settled as a luminous cloud on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to meet with God. Exodus 24, 16 says, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like consuming fire on the mountaintop. Uh, this is what the Apostle Paul saw. Remember when he was converted on the road to Damascus? And <clears throat> it talks about it in Acts chapter 9. It says it came about, uh, about, excuse me, and it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then in Acts 22, when he's defending himself before the Jews, he recounts this experience, and he calls it a very bright light. It came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then one more, again in Acts 26, before Agrippa, he says, while thus engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what I want to do under this first heading is <clears throat> develop our thinking by means of five observations. So um, five observations. The first one, and I think these all fit in with the fact, I'll try to show how they fit in with the fact that Christ is the radiance of his glory. But number one, uh, the, the glory of God being a revelation of his nature, it evokes worship on the part of his people. Uh, that's why we want to worship. That's why we want to praise God. Uh, that, that's why texts like 29, Psalm 29, 9, in his temple, everything says glory. Or Psalm 26, 8, Lord, I love the habitation of your house in the place where your glory dwells. So it's like the psalmist, I, I want to be in the place where there is a revelation of the perfections and the attributes of the being of God. So, so worship, it's not a superficial response to some sort of spiritual cheerleading it's not a religious pep rally. It's the reaction of the soul to the perception of the glory of God and the manifold perfections that make up his being. <clears throat> it's almost um, synonymous with praise at times. Observation number two, because the holiness of God is closely associated with the glory of God, worship will be marked by reverence, not flippancy. Sobriety, not levity. Because the holiness of God is closely connected with the glory of God, that means true worship will always be marked by reverence. Isaiah, you might be expecting this, chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his, uh, his feet, with two he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So you see, the holiness of God and the glory of God are closely connected. And I would just have you simply have you note here that a clear, unobstructed view of the character of God they are struck with the incomparable holiness of his being. So this is not orchestrated. It's not arranged. It's just the response from seeing God clearly. They repeat this refrain of God being holy. Edward Young, in his work on Isaiah, <clears throat> wrote, What is God's glory? It's the revelation of his attributes. By regarding the universe which he has created, we behold his glory, his perfection, and his attributes. The revelation of God in the created universe, his declarative glory, is sufficient to convince men of holiness, righteousness, and justice, as well as his almighty power, so that men are without excuse. The entirety of creation, visible and invisible, speaks with voices clear and positive of the glory of the holy God. Wherever we turn our eyes, we see the marks of his majesty and should lift our hearts in praise to him who is holy. This is his world, the wide theater in which his perfect glory is displayed. And so what I'm affirming here is because a leading feature of his being is holiness, then worshiping him will always be marked by reverence. And if we want a a verse that just removes all doubt... Psalm 211, worship the Lord with reverence. That's the kind of worship he requires and he desires. It will always be the reply, the response of the heart who is beholding the the beauty and the excellency of his infinite holiness. Observation number three, getting a bit closer to the text. um, Christ himself is like like the Father as an infinitely glorious being. Christ himself, like the Father, is an infinitely glorious being. He's not simply a reflection of his glory. He's the radiance of his glory. He possesses the same glory as the Father because he possesses the same attributes and perfections as the Father. So he's not a lesser God. He's not a diminished God. He's not a diluted God. Excuse me, diluted God. Let me just give you some text that really, I think, press this point further, that he is an infinitely glorious being. 1 Corinthians 2.8 calls him the Lord of glory. Charles Hodge wrote, he is the possessor of divine excellence. And then John 17.24, we begin with that. And we saw there that the great desire of our Lord for his people, all of his people, is to be with him where he's at, specifically so that they would behold his glory. That's his desire for the people whom the Father has given to him. And then in John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Dean Carson wrote about that. He says the the word, that is the second person of the Trinity, the word, made his dwelling among us. More literally translated, the Greek verb means that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent amongst us. For Greek-speaking Jews and other readers of the Old Testament Greek, Greek Old Testament, the term would call to mind the tabernacle where where God met with Israel before the temple was built. The tabernacle was erected at God's command. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. So in the Old Testament, the, the bright cloud of presence of God settled on the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled it. You remember the tabernacle was filled with the glory of the Lord, and Moses could not enter in because it was filled with the glory of the Lord. <clears throat> However, the incarnate word is the true tabernacle, the ultimate manifestation of God among his people. 
Well, then an another text here or two just to kind of emphasize this reality of the radiance of his glory. Luke chapter 9, I think, contains a marvelous display of his glory. It's one of three accounts of the transfiguration of Christ. It reads like this. Some eight days after these sayings, it came about that he, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So the veil was removed, so to speak, and they beheld at least for a while his incomparable glory. Because, you know, when he came into this world, he took on human flesh and he was in the form of a bondservant. So when he was in this world, his, his glory was veiled. It, it was not diminished, but you just couldn't see it. If there's a, a lion behind a curtain, it's still a lion. And, and when he was in this world, his, his glory was concealed, but he was still an infinitely glorious person. Now, the Apostle John was at the Mount of Transfiguration. <clears throat> Sometime later, as you know, he wrote the book of Revelation, and it's called a, a revelation to John. And if we ask the question, a revelation of what? Well, Bruce Ray has been here many times. We know it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what the book is about. It's a manifestation of the person of Christ. Well, then we ask, well, what was that like? I mean, how did John respond to a revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us in chapter 1, he says, I was in the spirit in the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his breast with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in strength. <clears throat> when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. So Christ, like God the Father, is an infinitely glorious person. Okay, now observation number four, the reality of the glory of Christ helps you and I to understand the nature of true salvation. It helps you and I to understand the character of true conversion to Christ. Two verses here I'll read in your hearing. Um, one is from a negative perspective, the other is positive. Said Corinthians Chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What they don't see is called the light the gospel. That's good news. And what they don't see is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who, who is the image of God. That's a, a spiritual description of the unsaved. They are, present, they are prevented by the instrumentality of Satan from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, 
uh, Charles Hodge wrote, the glory of Christ is the sum of all the divine and human excellence, which is centered in his person. It makes him the radiant point of the universe, the clearest manifestation of God to his creatures, the object of supreme admiration, adoration, and love to all intelligent beings, and especially to his saints. Uh, so creation is sort of the grand physical panoramic theater. It displays his power, his holiness, his wisdom. But the clearest manifestation of the glory of God is in his son. So positively, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, a reference to the creation, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of the God in the face of Christ. How does conversion occur? God shines in the heart, and he gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the word shown here represents the Greek term which, um, from which lamp is derived. So the idea, it's God's work indoors. The soul's been darkened by sin. So the spiritual light goes on, and what is seen and what is beheld is the glory of the person of Christ. That is conversion. That is the reality of conversion, the nature of conversion. It's beholding the glory of the person of Christ. Then number five, um, to kind of move ahead in time, the full undiminished display of the glory of Christ is a prominent feature of our Lord's return. The glory of Christ is a prominent feature of our Lord's return. Uh, these words are from uh, Matthew chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the, the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Leon Morris comments here, he's He's speaking of his coming back to earth, a return that will be so striking, it will leave no doubt as to his majesty. The clouds are often associated with the presence of the divine, and that will be their significance here. This is further made clear by the addition of with power and great glory. Jesus is speaking of the majestic appearance of a king, the very antithesis of his first coming in the form of his servant. The majestic appearance to the king will spell, will spell deliverance for the servants of God, gathering the elect from the four winds. That means nothing, none will be missing. The coming of the king and his angels is to be no hole-in-the-corner affair, but a coming to gather his elect. Now, the significance... Of, of the glory of Christ, the revelation of the glory of Christ. Let me just give you some of this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. What about for unsaved people? What does that mean to them? This is a bit of what it means from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul says, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Then he says this, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in, in flaming fire. That's coming in glory. 
revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. This is why you want to make sure you have an interest in Christ. I mean, everybody's going to behold his glory at some point in time. So now is when you want to deal with your soul. And now is when you want to make sure that you have a living interest in Christ. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, it indicates every eye will see him. So, so every single person in the universe will see and behold the glory of Christ at some point in time. The background to that is Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. I, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the ancient of days was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed so that's point one in the first place uh, christ is the radiance of his glory he is the perfect manifestation of the being of god because he is god as such he should be adored, he should be praised, he should be worshipped. He should be revered because he is an infinitely holy being. And the glory of conversion is, is the soul for the first time is enlightened to behold the manifold excellencies which constitute the being of the Son. Now, now second, and more briefly, um, there is a full identification on his part with the being of the father there's a clear manifestation but there's a, a full identification with the father the two phrases of the text here they're, they're they're very closely related in meaning he's the radiance of his glory the exact representation of his person um the king james expresses it he's um the express image of his person uh, and this phrase, I, I think, believe it helps us to understand why is it that he is the radiance of his glory? He is the radiance of his glory because he is the exact representation of his person. Uh, the word rendered exact representation refers to a term that means an exact copy or reproduction. It's understood as the exact expression that is a result of printing or engraving on a stamp. Now, one commentator wrote the Greek word translated exact representation. It was used for the impression left by a seal and for the impress, reproduction, representation on a coin. Now, this term signifies an exact correspondence between the impression and the seal that it makes. And then we have the term nature, um, which means essence, actual being, reality, that which something really and truly is, as in, in contrast to what it merely seems to be. So one wrote thus, the Son is the perfect imprint of the very being of God. F.F. F. Bruce, I think, had a good summary. He said, just as the image and superscription of a coin exactly correspond to the device on the die, so the Son of God bears the very stamp of his nature. Just as the glory is really the effulgence, so the substance of God is really in Christ, who is its impress, its exact representation and embodiment. What God essentially is, is made manifest in Christ. To see Christ is to see what the Father is like. Well, two um, kind of bullet point implications that I would leave you with based on this. Number one, um, these phrases reinforce in our minds 
the legitimacy that God's final revelation is in the Son. They just further describe his glorious character and how uniquely he is related to the Father. And the rightness that the final revelation being in the Son, it resides in the incomparable greatness of the Son's being. As Peter O'Brien wrote, the choice of terms to describe the Son's relationship to the divine nature he is the divine, he's the radiance and exact representation. Demonstrate clearly that the Son is uniquely qualified to be the final manifestation of God. And then a second implication I would leave you with. It means that Christ is always the perfect representation of God to his people. Christ is always the perfect representation of God to his people. The Puritan John Owen put it like this, all the glorious perfections of the nature of God do belong unto and dwell in the person of the Son. Were it not so, he could not so gloriously represent unto us the person of the Father, nor of the contemplations of him. Could we be led to an acquaintance with the person of the Father? So to behold the glory of the Son is to behold the glory of the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father and what he is truly like. And let us pray. Father, I I thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness and and pray that you might take what we have considered um, and apply it to our own souls uh, for your honor and for our good. We thank you um, that you have uh, left us this, this precious revelation of the character of your pure and precious and holy Son and pray that... um, it would be not only for your glory and your honor, but uh, for the good of our own souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.